Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of the Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. How do you manage an epidemic? In a World Health Organization field manual for epidemics from 1986, you can see the basic priorities. Rely on surveillance or a public health monitoring system to help you buy time when the disease comes. Prepare lab support. Track down the infected contacts to determine the source of the outbreak. Gather quantitative data on the spread of the disease. Develop protocols for testing hypotheses about the cause of the disease, and so on. It looks like a military planning document, which makes sense as public health services the world over feature quasi-military structures and police powers which they deploy in times of crisis. In contrast to the power struggle over the bathhouses we saw in episode 4, a much different approach to the exercise of power was taken when it came to caring for people living with AIDS in San Francisco hospitals and clinics. By now, you probably have a sense that there was a different way of providing health care in San Francisco at the beginning of the 80s. The affected community was involved at almost every level of health intervention. Why did community involvement become so important in research, clinical and nursing care, and outpatient treatment? Health practitioners recognized that AIDS was not just a germ invading human bodies. It was a social, economic, cultural, and political crisis that required action at every level in order to combat the disease. Back at the KS Clinic at UC San Francisco, Dr. Marcus Conant and nurse educator Angie Lewis began working with community activists such as Cleve Jones in the spring of 1982 to appeal to the community for their time and money to support the care of AIDS patients. But what I remember is Mark called me and said that he wanted, he called me like one day and wanted me to do it that night or the next day over in the school over by 18th Street in the Castro, where there was flyers that had been put up in the Castro about there's going to be an, an organizing meeting and they were looking for people who wanted to help people who had the disease. But certainly by September of 82, you were chairing I'd it. I'd say <laughs> this was probably in spring maybe of 82. Mm-hmm. It was early because it was really before there was a committee or an active board and that was community-based. So Mark started talking about the Education Research and Education Foundation, and it was going to be education and research and patient support. And he said, and now we're going to divide up into subgroups, and I want you each to pick the topic you're most interested in, and you'll meet, and there'll be a leader there who who take the meeting to the next step. Cleve was doing education, and he was taking research, of course. And he said, and Angie will talk about patient support. I had no notion in the world that he was going to do this. I didn't know why I was at this meeting quite. And it was, and do you know of those 50 guys or whoever was there 
38 of them or 48 of them went into my group. I mean, they all wanted to do patient support. That's what people wanted to uh-huh. keep, to do and to yeah. give support to. Because they wanted to help the yes, people of course. they knew. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. which made perfect sense. The larger group that was to provide research, education, and patient support services was founded in April 1983 as the KS Foundation, which is today known as the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Now, another facet of the story was that the gay community was already participating in the healthcare community. There are many lesbian and gay nurses, doctors, and researchers who were involved in these projects. Here is nurse Gary Carr. In nursing, like in the clergy, there's always been like a lot of gay people. That whole thing about nursing that attracts um, a sort of caring kind of people and a sort of uh, sexually gender unconventional people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then along comes this epidemic that affects gay people. There's one place that stands out in the story of a multifaceted approach to AIDS. Ward 5B of San Francisco General Hospital. It was there that health professionals and members of the community pioneered a new way of treating epidemic disease and human suffering in general a way that became known around the world as the San Francisco model. I'll be criticized for saying this, but it's not actually a model. It's kind of this um, eclectic gathering of different Uh things that kind of came together, and you you could call it a model if you want, but it certainly was never set out that way. My definition of it would be that the San Francisco model, the contribution of it, is that it uh, it was an attempt to coordinate resources, to coordinate the services for the first time with an, at that point in time with an emphasis on institutional care but with a, a recognition that community-based care played a major role. Every aspect depended on every other aspect and that none of us were operating in isolation, that we were all very much dependent on each other. That was Clifford Morrison, a nurse at San Francisco General who was in charge of organizing the first hospital ward devoted to AIDS patients. Hospitals in those days were very hierarchical organizations, with hospital boards and doctors at the top, on down to nurses and clerical staff, and finally patients at the very bottom, especially if you were at a state-run hospital delivering care to those without health insurance. But in the 1970s, The nursing profession was starting to expand its areas of responsibility and improve its status within hospitals. Morrison took the concept of what was called primary nursing, which meant that a single nurse coordinated all of the care for a given patient throughout a stay in the hospital, and expanded that idea for care for AIDS patients. He and nurse Helen Schiedinger also worked with Shanti, the volunteer hospice and end-of-life care organization. The Shanti training in the influence of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross of Five Stages of Grief fame dovetailed with Morrison's embrace of the values of empathy, mutual respect, empowerment, and tolerance of difference. But the tradition of controlling top-down hospital care wasn't the only problem. For one thing, the LGBT community did not fit into conventional ideas about a patient's needs, which were, at the time, defined by doctors and nurses not the patients themselves. For example, since homosexual couples were not allowed to marry, they would not have the conjugal right to visit a partner in hospital. Fear and ignorance was also fully in play. AIDS patients were often ostracized in hospitals, 
and sometimes even attacked in their beds as the public fear around the disease and homophobia spiraled upward into a fever pitch. If they weren't in the critical care units, then they were stuck in rooms at the end of the hall that nobody ever went in. The rooms were never clean, their beds were never changed, their food was always sitting outside the door, that sort of thing. In many cases, this was not casual institutional neglect, as the homophobia that was outside the hospital was to be found inside as well. Here is nurse educator Diane Jones. I mean, I remember standing outside a patient's room and the surgeon had been called in to evaluate the patient who had pneumocystis and this patient needed a bronchoscopy to have the PCP diagnosed definitively. And the surgeon referred to the procedure as having to stick a tube down this fag's throat. You know, this was said in the hallway and, yeah. you know, was going to go unchallenged if I didn't say anything. And Which you did. Yeah. yeah. What was the response? You know, I mean, he knew he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it was really inappropriate, but it was mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, the rolling of the eyes and the whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, there was still permission to, you know, say these kinds of things. Yeah. Clifford Morrison knew he had to address the problems of care for these patients and that he had to start by talking to them directly. So I remember one day I just, out of the blue, decided there were about five or six patients that were ambulatory. And I just went and got them all and put them in wheelchairs and brought them over to 5B and put them in a circle. <laughs> and we sat there and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm stumped with this. You know, what, what can we do? What can we do that not necessarily is different, but what can we do to meet your needs? And that was the smartest thing I ever did because it became really clear to me at that point that very little of it the nursing perspective had anything to do with medical care. It was all psychosocial, it was all control issues, it was all education, uh, it was all about inclusion, patients having a role in uh, making decisions, uh, patients being amply informed, uh, patients' rights. You know, they wanted to, you know, one of the first things patients said to me was, I want to be able to control who I see and when I want to see them. You know, I don't want the institution dictating that to me. I don't want the institution to define my family. I'll tell you who my family uh -huh. is. Morrison found allies in other parts of the hospital administration and set about meeting the needs of the patients. He wrote a new hospital policy that allowed unrestricted visiting hours from anyone the patient permitted. Too often, friends and lovers had been turned away because they were neither spouses nor next of kin and to overcome the hospital's resistance to bringing in caregivers from Shanti, the Volunteer Holistic Care Group, for example, Morrison gained the strong support of City Health Department Director Mervyn Silverman, who had his back. Holistic care, treating the whole patient, their background and environment, has become a goal of medical care, a marketing byword and almost a cliché in the healthcare world today. Back in 1983, this concept was still fairly new in Western biomedicine and has become perhaps the lasting global legacy of the early fight against AIDS in San Francisco. I think it's had a, a very positive effect. And I think that the reason, and the number one group of people who I credit for this are patients, that they've really, that people with AIDS, because of, of the nature of the epidemic and what they had to confront, had to become their own advocates, and that they pushed and challenged us to respond 
in the way that we did. And they asked for allies, and those of us who did step in and start doing this work were responding to that, essentially. So I think what it's brought to nursing is a much stronger understanding of patient advocacy, a much stronger understanding of a need to to take a holistic approach in the management and care of patients, and to take a very patient-centered approach. So instead of being the ones to tell patients, this is what you're going to do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it puts us more often in the position of asking, what is it that you want? And then helping make that happen. And sometimes what they wanted was a little relief from the hospital environment. And so a little bit of the patient's world would be brought into the ward. So the standard that was set was not one where we would tolerate. Come to 5B, your homosexuality will be tolerated. Uh-huh. It was come to 5B, your homosexuality or your lifestyle or you as a transgender person or um, will be respected, you know, and celebrated and whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was much more of a proactive. And that was different than other units. So to that extent, it was identified as a gay unit. Plus, the gay community really supported it. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. people would show up and drag on Halloween mm-hmm. or, you know, Easter baskets. And most of the patients were gay. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, if anything, it's the patients that, mm-hmm. you know, that define the character of the unit. The San Francisco model was a local response both to the nature of a new disease and the special nature of a patient population and its position in society. The model aimed to integrate the social and the medical in their approach to care. Throughout the history of medicine, we learned over and over that diseases are social and cultural phenomena as much as they are about germs attacking bodies. Here, doctors, nurses, researchers, public health officials, community members, patients, and their families, in whatever form families took, absorbed this lesson and turned it into practice. And it worked. Since the early days of the AIDS epidemic, the nature of the crisis has evolved. I think we're learning that in a much deeper and even more complex way with the increasing number of injection drug users that are you know, coming in for care. I was doing a workshop at an AIDS conference a couple weekends ago, and I was presenting using a harm reduction model and working with injection drug users, and there was a fair amount of hostility in the crowd. One person, one nurse, raised her hand and said, she says, well, what exactly would you do for an HIV-infected prostitute who's a crack addict who shows up in the emergency room? What would you do for her? And it, you know, it was done in the, she asked this question in a very belligerent tone of voice. And I said, well, I think what I would do is to ask her, what is it that she needs? And I guess the difference of her approach from how I've been trained to is that when I went to nursing school, if you were presented with the, those set of labels, you would automatically start formulating a list of problems. And I would start, as a nurse, prioritizing what those problems mm-hmm. were and what the solutions would be. Mm-hmm. And the reality is is that it may or may not have anything to do with what this woman is interested in, capable of, or whatever. Right. So, and I think that that, that was true at the beginning of the epidemic, too. 
And so it's, I think, made us more responsive to patients' needs. By the early 1990s, it was clear that AIDS was a worldwide phenomenon, with explosive growth in countries with the fewest health resources to combat the disease. By the late 1990s, the advent of an effective cocktail of drugs transformed HIV from an infectious disease that killed within months or a couple of years of diagnosis to a chronic disease that could be treated indefinitely. At the end of 2015, approximately 37 million people are living with AIDS worldwide, and about as many have died since the epidemic began. As with all epidemics in history, AIDS revealed the social and economic fault lines in society. Although the disease can be managed with expensive drugs, fewer than half of the 37 million people with HIV have access to effective treatment. And though HIV initially struck mostly white men in San Francisco, the CDC reported that, by 2010, three African Americans or Latinos were infected with HIV for every white male in the United States and a quarter of new infections were from heterosexual transmission. The early response to the epidemic in San Francisco was as effective as it was because members of the infected community had organized themselves to provide care for one another, gained access to political power to change healthcare practices, and most importantly, made empathy the driving force for care, addressing the unique needs of the community that was suffering. The community also mobilized allies in city government and the hospitals who were sympathetic to the challenges of the epidemic. This political and community orientation of care was incorporated into the San Francisco model, which was adapted into many different forms across the country and around the world. It is no surprise that the epidemic thrives in communities that are more vulnerable, under-resourced, and stigmatized. If epidemics reveal the fault lines in society, then part of the treatment, as shown in these interviews, is to bridge the gaps that separate us. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sherodis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think, whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Kalanico for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, and San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien, and Cindy Jin. I'm Paul Burnett. Thank you for listening.